Ray Charles, Cab Calloway, Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, The Supremes, Cool and the Gang, and now, wait for it, Robin Farzad. <laughs> Full disclosure, we are live from the hip. For our listeners across the globe, that would be Richmond's historic Hippodrome Theater in Jackson Ward, established way back in 1914, traversed the vaudeville era, the Chitlin circuit, the jazz age. This neighborhood was known as the Harlem of the South. This was the Apollo of the South. All these great artists and presidents, past and present, came through these doors. It fell into dereliction. For a while, it was a church. For another stretch, it was a movie theater. It was restored to magnificence just a few years ago. And tonight, thanks to Joe Sparata and Lee Gregory, who are making this exceptional meal, we are launching our first in a series, Money on the River. Full disclosure, stay with us. This extra special, delicioso episode of Full Disclosure is made possible by the generous support of the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business, Performance Food Group, Harris Williams, Zenith Bank, Meadows Urquhart, Acrian Cook, and Steve and Kathy Markell. Go RVA. Joining me on stage from the historic Hippodrome Theater in Jackson Ward, RVA, a trifecta of investing legends. Dalal Solomon, right here to my left, of Solomon and Ludwin, which manages $850 million across more than 300 families. 350 families, get this, she was born in Honduras, raised in Flint, Michigan, uh, almost accidentally became one of the top financial advisors in the country, so much so that none other than Barron's has named her on its top wealth advisors list every year since 2004. Please give her a hand. <laughs> Seated next to her is the famous turtle trader, Jerry Parker, who answered an ad in the Wall Street Journal Back in 1983, he was self-admittedly kind of like a directionless Richmond schlub. Uh, but there was a competition, almost like trading places, to find a master trader. And he answered it, darn it. And he packed his wares and went to Chicago and became a Cubs fan. Uh, 35 years later, 34 years later, he is a Wall Street legend. On various shows, books have been written about him and the Turtles. His company, Chesapeake Capital Corporation, manages just over $200 million, and he is a star in the CTA field. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And Mike Beale, who's chief investment officer at Venerable Davenport and Company, founded in 1863, it now manages $6 billion. It's pretty much synonymous with investing and Richmond. He is like the dean of Richmond investors. There might not be a Markel success story were it not for his, his diaspora and people going off and his holdings. He was just featured in Barron's back in October. He is an income investing and capital appreciation guru. Thank you, sir. Dalal, I have a question for you here. So $850 million assets under management. You're right there up the road in, on, on Gaskins in Henrico County, nondescript, but I imagine that none of your clients expected Donald Trump to win that night. It was largely gospel that Hillary was gonna win this by a few points. It might be close in the Electoral College. The other way around, I imagine your phone was dialing off the hook when the Dow futures were like 800 points limit down. Uh, no. Actually, 
they, we've kind of turned investing on its head in regard to our strategy because it's so transparent and so logical that our clients know that when markets are down, they're actually calling us excited with the hopes that we're buying because we have a buy lower, sell higher strategy that um, takes money out of the market as valuations get lofty and markets get lofty and set it aside to go back into the markets when there's a downturn. So it really has flipped everything on its head for us. It's, it's really, it's actually exciting to hear the phones ring when the markets are down because people are like, are you buying? Are you, tell us you're buying. And it's a, it's a different mentality that we have. So here's the thing, you don't market, but when prospective clients come to you, do you test them at first for their risk tolerance or their investment ethos? Kind of, listen, we're not people that are gonna get scared when trends happen. You have to be able to survive something like a 2008. Um, yes, I mean, we tend to draw people that, that understand our philosophy, that um, buy into the, we're so different in terms of our, our, our investment strategies because unlike outside money managers, we actually sit across the table from clients and we know what this money needs to do for them. And we know that it's not just about beating the S&P 500, it's about accomplishing things, getting kids through college, um, paying off a mortgage, retiring with enough income, taking care of long-term care needs, gifting, leaving an estate for family. So our strategies really revolve less about um, beating benchmarks and worrying about market fluctuations, but instead taking advantage of those fluctuations by having a very logical, systematic, very transparent strategy in place, which we have a patent on, um, you wouldn't think that a buy lower, sell higher Warren Buffett strategy would, um, would be unique enough to have a patent, but it does. The, the, the logic and the algorithms that we've created in the software program that runs this for us is a patented program, but it really, it changes the, the conversation with clients because you start to realize that it, people want to beat the S&P 500, that's usually their benchmark, unless the S&P 500 is down, and then that's not their benchmark anymore. Jerry Parker, you've been a big critic of, of drawdowns, like traditional index investing um, exposes you to crazy volatility. If you just think about the past 15, 16 years, um, exogenous shocks like 9-11, uh, the war, um, but then Enron, the accounting scandals, and then people hesitatingly get back into the market in 2007 and they see a 50% drawdown. You're saying there's a better way to do this. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's a little ironic that, um, you know, Mike and I come from an accounting background and, you know, in this sort of conservative attitude and, uh, with investing in risk, and yet um, I trade derivatives and futures and longs and shorts. And uh, so, yeah, I think that, uh, after 33 years, I'm still uh, sold on um, a diversified portfolio, currencies, commodities, bonds and stocks, longs and shorts, systematic uh, rules, and of course we sort of just pay attention only to the trend of the market and try to ignore everything else. And so, um, yeah, I think um, that helps you control your risk and not get into a situation where you might have an investment like equities that might have an 8% annual return, but 50% plus maximum drawdown. 
Now this brings to mind something, Mike, that's in, kind of been, been talked about in the uh, finance 101 community right now, is the low risk volatility, the low volatility anomaly. Um, that you would think that you would get rewarded for investing in more volatile stocks over time, NASDAQ type stocks, things with higher risk inherently offer higher reward, but you also have a higher risk of ruin. But there's been an anomaly over the past 30 or 40 years where low volatility, predictable companies like consumer staples, consumer brands, you name it, groceries, tobacco and the like have, have trounced the S&P 500 and more cyclical categories. And it's kind of, it's, it's confounded a lot of investors. Um, now, you have a dilemma in that your investors want capital appreciation and income. So where are you in that, in that kind of low volatility debate? Well, certainly volatility and risk, there are things that we think about. And, but as it relates to, to, to equities, I, I guess I'd start off by saying we're, we are believers in the long-term benefits of owning equities. And um, we certainly look at the risks involved and we try to minimize that. And um, we are sort of being a conservative sort of old line firm. I feel like Jed Clampett sitting up here. <laughs> but Jed ended up with a nice house, didn't he? <laughs> anyway, the, you know, there are periods where low volatility, different groups and, and sectors in the market do, do better, but we try to balance those risks. We, we look for businesses, we think about investing in the stock market, somewhat Buffett-esque in the sense that uh, we think we're of the price we're paying for a stock is would a reasonable business person buy the whole business for that price? So we don't necessarily have to buy things that are you know, extremely low PEs or very high yields. There are certainly things that we, we look at, but we, we look at the business, the underlying volatility of the business. And I guess there's a confidence that we have that over time, if that business performs and is able to earn more money over time and not go broke during the difficult periods, that that's a strategy that will reward investors. Probably entails and definitely entails more volatility than a, a strategy like Jerry's. And, but hopefully on the other side, you know, there'll be more return in the end. And that's kind of our DNA, I mm -hmm. guess. I do want to ask you, Jerry, what happened to volatility? I mean, I came of age, I graduated from college, I took my Series 7, you know, in 98, Boris Yeltsin was literally teetering, oil fell to $10 a barrel, you had Russia and LTCM, I kind of came of age in volatility, but ever since the kind of the, the worst of the financial crisis, we really don't have corrections or big drawdowns. It's amazing how short-term the memory is right now. I mean, we haven't had anything huge happen largely since 2011. And suddenly the next thing you do is you look at some of the top capitalized companies in the United States are Amazon and Facebook. Well, I mean, I know where I was in uh, August of 14. I remember where I was and what was happening. The Dow was open down a thousand. So I didn't really appreciate that. <laughs> 15. Yeah, 15. So, um, yeah, that was a scary day. And I think in hindsight, when you have a strategy, in my opinion, that might be a little shaky, uh, that is no diversification, long only, stocks only, and in hindsight, it rattled like crazy that day and went straight back to all-time highs, I mean, that's too risky for me. 
it worked that time. Is it going to work again? I mean, I have no idea. But I think that's something to count your blessings that day, but build a strategy off that day? Not for me. Uh, I'm a crazy person who's trading currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long, short, trying to create a very uh, diversified portfolio with low standard deviation, low risk every single day using derivatives. And so it's a little contradictory, but you can do it and it's wonderful because I'm not going to sit there um, once again with uh, a long-term average of like 8% and 50 plus percent drawdown. We step on the field with uh, four hundreds of markets that are not correlated, longs and shorts. It's really not even possible to be that bad. I, I can't even devise a bad strategy that has an 8% return and a 50% drawdown because I have too much diversification. Okay, and yet we have seen, you know, just to push back a little, an enormous, enormous pull and push toward index funds over the past five or six years. I mean, Vanguard has been the big beneficiary. A lot of people are saying, I don't need to beat the market. I don't need to time the market. I just want to be the market. And suddenly, ETF investing is bonkers. You're in a price war in ETFs. And, and a record number of people, to the extent that they're still tuned into the market, are tuning out Fidelity, tuning out Putnam, tuning out Vanguard and mutual funds and wanting to be in indexes. So I guess people are happy with an eight or 9% with max drawdowns. What I think works in the markets is a strategy, a, a systematic approach with rules that you're going to be um, you're disciplined and you're willing to follow it. I'm sure all three of us, uh, if, you're, if you're surviving and succeeding, you have a strategy with objective rules and you're following it. So I think that active versus passive is not so much active versus passive, it's discretionary versus rules. And so the S&P is sort of a trend, rules-based basket, and um, it's hard to beat it. Even though I don't think it's a very good set of rules, it still beats no rules. And I think that's the lesson. Being, not being able to beat the S&P or beating the S&P is um, not as good as having a systematic approach with massive diversification that protects capital a little bit better than stocks have done historically. Dalal Solomon, talk to me about 2008. That was the formative period. I was at Business Week then, and I remember, and this could, in hindsight, this was a perfect contraindicator. All the people in the art department, in the graphics department, everything came and tapped on my office. I said, Farzad, what's going on? This is crazy. You know, well into 2009, when you were worried about Citi needing another bailout, when you were worried about another shoe dropping, was AIG just, could you even possibly liquidate it in any semi-orderly manner. I had cousins who I never even knew I had calling me from California uh, at their broker saying I want to sell it all. I had a good friend from childhood saying he wanted to, you know, his mortgage was underwater and he wanted to liquidate his 401k. It seems in, with, the, with the benefit of perfect 2020 hindsight that that was the time to buy when there was blood on the streets. What were your clients saying? Because we had never experienced anything like the free fall of autumn 2008 to spring 2009. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was terrifying for people. I mean, for clients that were preparing to retire or had just retired, um, it, was, it was frightening. It was devastating. Um, what was in your frame of reference to tell them? I mean, you'd only been investing for 
a handful of decades. People were invoking the depression. I had, I had uh, older people at the magazine telling me we were going to be eating cat food. We were going to be in bread lines. I mean, it sounds funny now, but it was, it was really pungent at the time. I had a major, major bond manager who I interviewed then telling me that he, while all this was happening, he very quietly told his wife to withdraw $10,000 in the bank account. I literally put it under a mattress. Um, that's how free fall it was. So I'm wondering what, what in real time was happening with you. I mean, really, when, when markets are that extreme, there's really three things you can do. You can, you can sell, you can hold, or you can buy. The problem with selling is that you're never going to get back in at the right time to participate in a recovery. The best of all those scenarios is to buy when the pendulum is swung so far one way. That's kind of how we began the creation of our strategy because quite frankly, if the mark, everybody here I'm sure remembers 2008, if an advisor were to call you and say the markets are down another thousand points today after being down how many thousands, send me some money, it's time to invest, nobody does that. No, who's gonna do that? No one's gonna send us, but that's the right time to do it. And that was the premise of the creation of our trigger point strategy where we were selling as those markets in 2005, 6, 7 were going up. We had cash available. We didn't have to call clients and say, now's the time to buy. Our program actually took advantage of that and we were fully invested by March of 2009. We were fully back in the market by March of 2009, which I don't think we're geniuses. I think we got a little bit lucky, but that was the bottom of the market. And then we were able to, to ride it back up. Now, the last six or seven years, eight years, have been unbelievable. Are we in a bubble? I mean, I think there's, I mean, the markets don't go straight up. So the last several years, we've been actually taking profits off the table, preparing for the same kind of thing. We're going to have a correction. Markets don't go straight up. Valuations are high. And even if our clients can't remember 2008 or 2001 or 1987, we remember it. And we're not going to let that happen again. We're, just, we're not going to participate in those kinds of drawdowns on our clients' assets. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live from Richmond's historic Hippodrome Theater, founded, opened in 1914, restored magnificently uh, just a few years ago, I believe, 2012, 2013. This is our inaugural episode of Money on the RVA, Money on the River, featuring three legendary local national investors. I am wondering how everybody likes their food so far. Have you tried the brisket yet? It's like, it's like butter to the Women's Investing <laughs> Club of Richmond. <laughs> who, many of whom have been on my show so far. Thank you so much. I want to bring the conversation to you, Mike. Fast forward. Okay, the Federal Reserve goes to zero interest rate policy, December 2008. We'll throw everything at it. Not just take rates down to nothing, but throw another three or four trillion dollars of conjured money at it. Quantitative easing, qualitative easing, QE1, QE2, whatever you want to call it. Long and short of it is we've now had almost a decade of really piddling yield opportunities. Every opportunity, whether it was REITs or, or, or a high yield or quality corporate debt or high dividend stocks, that's kind of, the, the, the word on the street is that's been arbitraged out. Now if you want to get yield, you have to take on risk. You have to take on duration. 
How in the world are you finding opportunities for yield in that environment? We are attracted to, uh, on the equity side, by the way, we don't just do equities. We, we, we do bonds and other things. Why don't we take income as an asset class? Let's be creative. How are you producing income? People come to you right now, they're like, listen, Mike, I've had 50, 60 years in the stock market. I want yield, I want income. I did not plan to get nothing from a CD or a, a treasury note at this stage of my life. Broadly speaking, we're still attracted to companies that pay dividends and the dividends can grow. And um, what we're most cautious about are, are or say in, in, on the equity side, companies that pay large dividends that don't grow because they're very much bond-like. We don't have a, a forecast of interest rates, but our, our general feeling is, and this is consensus, I, I realize that, that you know, interest rates are abnormally low. Hopefully they'll return to a higher level. We don't believe they're going back to a 10-year at five or 6%. There will be a new normal that's above where we've been, but maybe not what it's been over the long term. The risk is in the long duration assets that have, a, have an income stream that can't grow. But if we can buy on the equity side, companies that pay meaningful dividends and have the capacity to grow those dividends and can grow them faster in a better economic environment, which would be one that would accompany higher interest rates, we think that is, is a good strategy. I mean, even today, I mean, just pick an example. Johnson & Johnson has a 2.8% yield. Its 10-year bonds don't yield that much. The 10-year Treasury bond yields two and a half. They've raised the dividend every year for 55 years. Um, you never say never, and, uh, but we think the prospects for them to continue to do that. And I'm gonna follow the compliance rules at Davenport. I'm not gonna get you to stock pick, but when we first met, um, over lunch, you and I spoke about, you coined something, was, I loved it and I want to crib it, um, diversification. We have a local company here, um, Altria, uh, which predecessor company, Philip Morris, Philip Morris USA, if you go back to the Credit Suisse uh, investing outlook for the beginning of, of last year, is the best performing US stock of the 20th century. I believe a dollar invested in the early company and then all the dividends paid out and all the divestitures turned into millions of dollars by 2015. Um, you say it's a bind when you deal with employees of this firm and you, they come to you and, and you're giving them the right fiduciary advice. Listen, you should diversify. It's a, you know efficient market hypothesis. You don't wanna have all your eggs in a basket. Maybe there's a litigation risk. But year after year, this company is outperformed. I was confessing, okay. I thought you were a priest. <laughs> I'll apply communion when the show ends. But what it was pointing to, and, and you know, in Richmond, we're blessed to have had a, a number of really good companies. And of course, what we were talking about was Altria, and a lot of our, those employees retire. And we had this discussion that you alluded to about diversifying, and the, which you know, frequently, personally, and other my colleagues had helped people do. And over time, we realized that we were making them worse off by doing this. And. Um, so personally, when I, I deal with a, a retired Altria employee, we, we do diversify some, but I have to tell them there's a good chance that whatever it is we do is not gonna be as good as where you already were. But how do you fundamentally even explain that when I look at the sell side reports, if you know, tobacco use among adults or whatever is at an all-time low, but the stock's multiple is closer to an all-time high, is it that people want predictability? They want, like, we go back to the low volatility anomaly. Is that a prime case? 
It, it is. Um, first of all, that is a very well-managed company. And to think that you've seen the market for their products shrink, and yet, but they have managed their capital so well that the company's ability to grow dividends has actually increased because of the way they've managed it. But uh, to your point, it, it's very possible that companies like that, they are among the more fully valued companies in the market relative to their growth rate. And um, there's some evidence that in, investors are overpaying for safety, which sounds kind of oxymoronic, but, uh, and that's true in a number of the consumer staples sort of companies. So in our case, where we manage individual portfolios, we've been kind of gradually reducing those as a piece of the portfolio. But uh, we're not gonna get rid of all of them. I saw a stat recently when you talked about paying for safety, um, and I'll fact check it for everybody afterwards, but on a, on a price to earnings level, when you back out cash on the balance sheet, Kroger supermarket chain is actually trading at a premium to Apple, uh, the largest company in the world. How many people here have you know, iPhones and iPads at home and um, Apple watches and whatnot? And that, that to me is really indicative of, if you look at the past 17 years, it's really swung in the pendulum from growth at any price to, uh, a lot of people would just say it's almost like a safety fetish. People have overpaid for that. And so the key is to, is to shift the portfolio somewhat. And if um, the events we saw in November, are in fact, take us uh, with a new administration, new tax policies, less regulation, to a faster growing world, you, those kinds of stocks will definitely lag. Jerry Parker, uh, by way of full disclosure, the name of the show, uh, Jerry Parker has an adorable new grandson. Hank, this guy has a gorgeous head of hair. Um, his mommy and daddy are here tonight. And I'm not just saying that, uh, but this is a tortured transition. Does he have a 529? And if he does, what do you put in it right now? Let's say Inception. <laughs> T minus 18, is he all long Chesapeake? Is he, is he gold? What do, you, what do you see the future as, you know, 18 years from now? I'm sure you're wanting him to go to UVA. <laughs> Talk to us. Well, I think um, as we move forward, people are going to move more towards what I'm trying to say tonight. I'm right, and they'll, they'll catch up. <laughs> but isn't he already long? Is this problematic? Isn't he already long CTAs by dint of you know, his blood relationship to you? I mean, shouldn't he be in something absolutely non-correlating with that? I mean, I think um, I'm probably not going to answer your question. Look, I think, <laughs> I think that when you hear about a strategy that invests in lots of different things and, uh, that I've mentioned in shorts as well, then you've got this one question, and that is, um, but stocks are better. They just make more money, and they don't. So there's nothing to, uh, there's no opportunity cost to be long currencies or commodities or interest rates or short them at the right times. And so um, you people are, you know, but stocks are doing really well. And so that's, that's fallen on deaf ears. But over time, you know, uh, it'll become more evident that uh, safety is paramount and um, whatever you can do with stocks, not, not worth it the, if um, the, the best strategy is buy and hold and it's a 50, 60% uh, drawdown every 10 years. So 
I think that this, our particular strategy is one that's just gaining ground. It'll gain ground. It should gain ground. And Chesapeake and all of my competitors, you know, um, that's a great portfolio. Now, I'm not putting words in Dalal Solomon's mouth when I say that she's livid. She's shaking her head right now. <laughs> her son is in attendance, Jacob, who's about to finish college. So on the other end of the spectrum, what advice would you give him? He's going into investment management, ideally. What is in your crystal ball for the next 10, 20 years? I mean, we've talked, you and I, privately about companies being able to issue 50-year debt, 40-year debt at the very low single digits. How do we know what the interest rate environment, much less the kind of the, the, the global shock environment, the oil environment, the commodities, national security environment is going to be in 10 years versus 20 or 30 years? How do you even do that? Yeah, you don't. You, you, you just don't. I mean, there's, I mean, the one thing we all know is that the markets are unpredictable. Interest rates are unpredictable. Donald Trump is un unpredictable. There's just a lot of unpredictability in all this. So we don't really get too involved in trying to predict the unpredictable because we think that's a losing game. What we try to focus on more is where are we today and where have we come from? What are valuations? What's, what's the debt? What's the deficit? What, um, we, look, we look at a number of different things and we try to make a decision, and it's, and it's again, this is, this is an algorithm that, it's, that tries to take a lot of the um, predictions out of it. If things are up too much and are getting lofty, we just want to be, we don't abide by the buy and hope mentality. No right? buy and hope. No buy and hope. No writing things up and then right. writing things down. The problem is we do have ETFs now. So someone can buy one position and own 500 stocks. And if they get scared, they're selling 500 stocks. It doesn't matter if Apple has great earnings or if Philip Morris is paying a great dividend. So in extremes, which I think that's our life now, I think with, with being able to trade on your cell phones and with new, breaking news every five minutes about something, Emotions are running the market, and we're in a, we're, we are in an environment that I think will last a long time where there's going to be a lot of volatility and a lot of extremes. And I think you have to have, not so dissimilar from what um, Mr. Parker's saying, you, you have to have a strategy in place, something that reacts to what is actually happening, as opposed to trying to predict what you can't predict. So we're big believers in... Um, uh, as markets rise, taking some of those, pro I remember so many clients in 2008 that said, I should have spent that money. Why didn't I just spend it? Why didn't I go ahead and take that trip or buy the car instead of watching it go down? We want to take money off the table. There are times when you just need to take profits off the table. Not, not everything, but you've got to be logical about the markets and valuations and where we are. Um, because like I said, the, the, the best thing you can do when a market is falling is to have the cash there to buy. That's, that's how money's made. Mike Beal, on the subject of diversification, especially if you take the explosion over a decade in ETF products. I mean, I can buy consumer non-durable ETFs. I can buy fast food, casual dining ETFs. There were nanotechnology ETFs. 
no joke, in five years there will be marijuana business ETFs. Um, you can slice and dice markets, not just here but abroad, in 2,000 different ways. Frontier markets, illiquid markets, various trade wars going on between Schwab and BlackRock and Vanguard and a couple of other upstarts. How much diversification is too much diversification? There's a school of thought that says an S&P 500 type mentality is just fine. After all, half of its revenue is, is derived from abroad. A lot of the companies you invest in, like J&J. &J. You know, I guess uh, we think diversification is important. And, um, and obviously it spreads the risk around. Can you spread it too far? I mean, I, I, I don't really know how to answer that. It depends on how much risk you're, you're, you're willing to take. But certainly ETS, for instance, we're giving people the opportunity to, to make those kinds of uh, uh, investments. They're fine. You know, and, and, and we occasionally use them ourselves. I mean, again, as I confess, done a lot of confessing tonight. The, um, you know, in our heart, we, 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 we like to own individual companies that we feel like we know, that we understand their business and like their prospects. There are times when you invest in certain arenas where it is a little more difficult to handicap, but you do feel like that something good is going on there. Uh, recently, we gave an example. We, we bought the uh, biotech ETF. And, and that world is, there are a lot of exciting things going on there. There's gonna be a lot of value, but there's a lot of risk associated with owning an individual stock. And that, that is an area where um, we feel like an ETF is a good way to, you know, to approach it. We can capture the benefits of a theme and a trend with diminished uh, individual stock risk. Other areas of the market, we're comfortable owning the leading companies in that area. Time was uh, to invest in Chesapeake Capital, you have to call a private investigator. Um, you'd have to find Jerry Parker, whether he's in Tampa or Richmond or Manhattan. Now apparently you can buy a Chesapeake uh, trend-following mutual fund. How did that happen? How did you come to that decision? Why do you want uh, retail investors in your midst? What, what good does that do for you? Well, I think it's uh, to some degree part of the collapse of hedge funds. Um, you know, it's like a different business model, two and 20. Um, you know, it's high fees and uh, high, uh, volatile AUM. And then another strategy would be lower volatility and lower fees and more stable money. And so it's just, the, just hedge funds and CTAs wanting to tap into other sources of investors. But there's definitely the fee pressure is um, another thing that makes it an easier call. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the hip talking to three legendary investors, Dalal Solomon of Solomon and Ludwin, Jerry Parker of Chesapeake Capital, Mike Beal of Davenport and Company, uh, established in 1863. Davenport was, not Mike Beal. Um, uh, I am so grateful for you guys being here. And chefs, Lee Gregory and Joe Sparata, they refuse to come out of the kitchen. They think I'm gonna ask them for stock tips, which I promised I wouldn't. I just wanna give them a round of applause I, if you like the food. If you don't, a gentleman by the name of Brian Broadway will refund you, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Dalal, I'd like to get to the subject of cash. Cash, cash everywhere. We keep hearing about cash on the sidelines, um, cash waiting for an opportunity to get in. Cash is also a dilemma, even if cash is king. I speak to so many business owners, uh, people who are fearing exit or divestiture because they don't know where to put the cash. 
There's just no easy answer right now. A CD has paid nothing forever. There's sometimes, you know, I was in, I was in New York and there was a, an offer at, at Chase, a 10-year CD that pays 2%. Um, who's doing who the favor, and how in the world do you tell people to keep the faith? Yeah, it's, it, it has been very, very challenging, and I think that's part of the reason the markets are so overvalued. There's really no other place to go. It's, um, central banks have driven this risk-on bubble in the stock market. Um, because there really is no place else to go, and people do need. People are looking for income, and I think that's a, a really um, slippery slope. I think that um, people are getting lax, kind of like we were lax in uh, the late '90s, thinking that the market's never going to have a correction, and that you can keep making these kinds of gains and collecting your dividends until there is a correction. And then all of a sudden, one or 2% sounds way better than down 20 or 30% on your principal. So it is the world we live in. The good thing about interest rates now is that we don't have any real inflation, so it's not like interest rates. Do you rate buy that, that we don't have inflation? I mean, there are central we have, bank we have, we have inflation in, in certain areas, healthcare is, is inflationary, education, but uh, generally it, it appears that inflation and in, in most other asset classes are in, are in check. Mike, you've been at this since what, 1980, 1981? Before the war. <laughs> I wanted to, to timestamp that date. You know, I was a really successful 40-something investor in 1980. No, um, because that's when inflation was killing the stock market. That's when Paul Volcker was brought in there, like the famous magazine cover that said, death of equities, why inflation is killing the market. We have not seen anything like that here. We've not seen anything like a, thank you, a bond bear market since the early 80s. In fact, I wonder what the institutional memory is on the street. I go to a typical bond desk, and a lot of these guys are a few years out of college. Maybe they've gotten an MBA. Many of them don't remember what happened in 94 with the, with the creep up in rates and Alan Greenspan, and that very nearly felled some major firms on Wall Street. And yet, every year starts with magazines saying, this is the year that the bond bull is going to get slayed, and there's going to be blood on the streets. And it hasn't happened. And I'm worried about a kind of a cry wolf mentality, lulling people to just think that you can never lose money in bonds. I think you're correct. I mean, it's been a 37-year bull market. And um, the rates that we saw in 1980 were anomalous. They weren't normal. Uh, they were historically way high. And the rates that we've seen the last few years are the other end of the spectrum, anomalous, way too low. I mean, when we came from Iran, my dad would take me to American Savings and Loan in Miami, and we get a toaster, we get a blender, we get a 16% CD passbook thing, and they give you those little sponges, you know, you put them in the water, they get big. And I was like, wow, this bank, you know. I get nothing like that now. I walk into my bank, they don't give me time of day, they try to get me go online and cross-sell me. Um, I'm thinking this, this aggression cannot stand. <laughs> well, it won't, and I think every, you know, we've alluded to it in different ways here. I mean, there's a lot of risk in safety, and bonds are perceived to be safe, and it, you know, we saw a pretty dramatic uh, change in bond prices, you know, right after the election. Yeah. So uh, I think that was sort of a wake-up call to the, to the risks in, in the bond market. And you're probably right, it's been going on so long People have a hard time believing that it can happen, but it will. 
again, I would argue, and I think we would argue that we're not going we're not going back to that other end. Right. But it uh, it might get a little shaky as we kind of adjust to something more normal. I mean, so that you know, interest rates in Japan have been near zero for two decades. So th this sort of thing can persist longer than you than you ever dream. And Japan also goes through more adult diapers than baby diapers. Um, they have a unique demographic problem, and uh, the hunt for yield right now is just crazy global. Uh, this is another bind, and I, I think it points to maybe a certain uh, monetary exceptionalism that the United States has. Every time our yields creep up and something goes wrong in Europe or in Asia, it seems like people pile back into our treasuries sending the yields down and kind of bailing us out. It's like the obverse of bond vigilantes. Well, our rates relative to other developed markets are high. high. We're going to say, I mean, they're a deal. Jerry Parker, you've had Steve Bannon, top advisor to Donald Trump, a Richmonder, I believe he went to Benedictine, gave an interview out uh, a month ago saying that we should be availing ourselves of this wonderful opportunity. Kind of reminds you of Rahm Emanuel when he took you know, he was the president's chief of staff, and he says, never waste a good crisis. Uh, they didn't fully get all the shovel-ready projects they wanted, but now you're getting talks about significant, significant fiscal stimulus. I mean, if the world is going to give us money for nothing, we're going to spend it. We're going to build bridges. Let them be bridges to nowhere. We're going to build high-speed rail, dams. We're going to, you know, dam up Pennsylvania and Michigan and all those fine states. Um, are you worried about fiscal irresponsibility now? I know this is not your, your, you know, your, your bailiwick, you're going to follow the trend, but if we just do this and suddenly, yes, we were at max stimulus with the Fed, but now we have Republicans in control of the Senate, the House, and the White House, and this carte blanche on spending. So you're getting back at me for my criticism of your pro-Hillary tweets, evidently. <laughs> Jerry, a, Jerry texted me the night of, he was trolling me, he's like, Dow down 800 points, Trump's gonna win this, you know. So, uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess what I wanted to say about the bonds, maybe it fits with this a little bit, is that um, because I was in high school in the 70s and there was a darn good reason the interest rates were high. And that's because we had incredibly high inflation and we were all monetarists, we understood it, and Volcker came in and destroyed it, and rates went down. And so now we have lots of money supply, I think. I think that's what that is. All this money floating around, helicopter money maybe, and um, now we have low rates. So the point I want to make is, I have to craft my own question, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is these relationships, they change, and so, uh, when I was in the 80s, if crude was up, bonds were down. Uh, so that's the benefit of trading kind of a simpler trend strategy where if something is up, you are going to be adding to it. If something goes down, you're going to be reducing, uh, maybe going short. And so these relationships are changing all the time. The fundamentals seem to be changing. Um, what are the fundamentals? Um, and so I think um, we're always surprised. Uh, I remember back in the 90s, uh, I was at a broker conference, and um, one of the Morgan Stanley brokers asked me, um, what do you think about Bill Clinton? And I was like, um, oh, I don't like Bill Clinton. I think it's, he's not going to be successful. 
because we just learned under Reagan that if you raise taxes, uh, the market will go down. And uh, he goes, so you're short the S&P? I'm like, God, no, I'm long. I mean, it's going up. And so that's really, I think, the mentality that I have is I have cocktail party talk. I have talk about what's going on in the politics and the, and the economy and the bonds and the stocks and infrastructure spending and that stuff. But when it gets down to serious business, protecting capital, making money, um, I'm going to be long the stocks. I don't care. It doesn't even cross my mind if it's a bubble and I'm short the bonds because they're going down and it's too risky to go against those major trends. Mike, when I see your Barron's interview and some of the multinationals in here like General Electric, JP Morgan Chase, um, you talk about Diageo, I mean, these are it, 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 companies with an enormous chunk of their top line, J&J, &J, that is derived abroad. What was going through your mind when Britain voted, rather surprisingly, to, to exit the European Union? And we've survived that so far, and even the hit that the pound sterling took. But what if the next weakest link, what if something goes wrong terribly in France with elections, or Italy, which is exceptionally indebted? Are we looking at another round of, of contagion in Europe that could take down some of the biggest multinationals in the United States? I don't, I don't think it'll take them down, but the um, emerging nationalism and protectionism um, is a disturbing trend, or trend of two countries, but I, these um, trends or, or, or thoughts or political movements um, do threaten world trade and could have the impact of reducing it. Because it, it part and parcel of or protectionism, nationalism, protecting workers at home, and everybody understands that's important. But if this leads to tariffs and trade wars, uh, it's, it's a pretty big negative for companies that operate internationally. But ironically, it's, it's negative here, too, because it will affect jobs of, of people here that are involved in export industries. So I would say the political events, uh, to some extent that you mentioned Brexit and then you did mention, but Trump selection afterwards, there are good things that could come at them, but there are also a whole set of risks that are real. Yeah, I just think um, understanding those risks, quantifying those risks, um, setting a portfolio on these risks is just incredibly hard to do. And um, I want to be number one on the list of people who cannot predict where the markets are going. And in fact, I think that um, I prefer to have a trade on where the sort of fundamentals or the popular fundamentals in news is one way and the trend is the other way. So I get a little nervous when everyone agrees what these risks are and it sort of agrees with my position. I'd rather be in the minority and, be, and have um, a position on that people are skeptical of. So I really, I really want to double down or uh, even more on not being able to predict what's going to happen in the future. And I don't think you have to predict because it won't be successful. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live from the hip for the inaugural episode of Money on the River, Money on the RVA. What should it be called, River or RVA? Any Money on the RVA. Many guests in the pipeline, but I have to know what to call it. And I have to survive another 10 or 15 minutes uh, of everybody liking this. And if you don't, I'm, I'm just going to flee to Fredericksburger somewhere else after the fact. Uh, but uh, in the 10 or 15 minutes that we have left, I'd like to take the conversation over to China, for the time being the second biggest economy on the planet. 
We had on our show Jim Chanos, the, the noted hedge fund manager of Kinecos Associates, who's been a, a, an outspoken short on China. He thinks it is the biggest bubble in world history. It's almost Ponzi-like in how the government manufactures yuan, throws it into kind of state-created empty cities and factories and bringing people out of the countryside to keep the street at bay, and it can't continue. It can't go on forever. You have empty trains, empty buildings. How worried are you about this economy derailing, about the systemic effects? I'll take it to Dalal. And I know you have, you have a model here. You're, you're very disciplined. Um, what I love is when I step into a building out on Gaskins. It's an old bank building which has a bank vault. Like this like 20 inch thick steel doors and that's where she keeps the, the secret computers, Hal, that, that you know, delivers the alpha. But I want to know about China. Does that keep you and your clients um, up at night? You know, I think there's a place always for emerging markets in, the port, in a portfolio. I think it's part of the diversification. I think it's one of those um, markets that you either love it or you hate it and there's nothing in between. Actually, emerging markets have recently done extremely well. Again, I think in our strategy, it's uh, volatility and extremes are actually beneficial for our strategy. So our emerging market position. You know, but the, when it gets vexingly difficult when, like I like to look at, say, a Columbia is an amazing story in emerging markets. It's gone from being nearly a failed state in 2002 to being kind of the, the the, the envy of investment bankers in South America. Everybody wants to go to Medellin. Everybody wants to pitch these companies. But how good is Colombia or Peru or Vietnam or Ghana without China buying at full tilt? That's my question. Are they all, is the world ready for China to have a hard landing? Even the companies in your portfolio. I have no idea. And I'll, and I'll tell you why that doesn't matter to me. We invest in a basket of emerging market stocks. Just like we don't buy individual stocks, we use completely passive ETF, no load index funds. And all we're trying to do is govern how much should be in that market at any point in time. So quite frankly, you know, again, it's, I can't predict it. I don't want to predict it. All I know is where, where have the emerging markets come from, where are they today, and how much should we govern, how much is in it, and how much opportunity cash should we have set aside in that market to take advantage of the next big downturn in emerging markets, which will happen. By way of background, if you want to know where Dalal gets her unique chill, she started her first business in college, a consignment shop for jewelry and artwork, and paid her way through Michigan State University running the business, working as a waitress and painting college dorm rooms in the summer. She earned her Bachelor of Science degree in 1977. You attribute your entrepreneurship to your business-savvy mother and father who ran a small grocery in Michigan. The family lived on the second floor above the store. So that's the view on China. <laughs> Jerry, what do you think? Does China keep you up at night? What is the trend? Um, what, where are the, the, the kind of the hidden exposures of China lurking? Mm, I'm not a China expert, but uh, you know, we do, do trade the Chinese currency, and it has uh, had some volatile moves recently, and I think um, that would probably be one of the things that I do think could set off an equity decline um, in the US. Um, I think to the degree that uh, just as a crazy conservative right-wing person in general, uh, I would just say that um, the more a country practices free markets and capitalism, the more stable it's going to be and the less bubblish it's going to be. And so to the degree that China is letting its currency float 
and uh, having more um, free market policies, I think. Uh, but um, I'll be following the trend on the currency. China, Mike Beal. I think I'll come up with part of a Churchill quote. Yeah, I think he said China is an enigma wrapped in a riddle and, and there's something else. I mean, it's always been a very difficult place for people to figure out. And you look at it today, and again, I'm no China expert. I'm, I'm equal with Jerry. The, um, it's weird. You know, you have this command economy, and um, yet you have, which is communist, and yet you have all these people that are enjoying the rising standard of living, or many associated with a capitalistic society. And it's a, it's a confusing place. There are definitely dangers there, the Chano's case for leverage. At the end of the day, if you said you had to bet on those, I would bet that they're going to do okay. I think they're making the steps, and this goes a little bit to what Jerry was saying, to, to, to let market forces work. But they've got to kind of do it gradually. Part of that, I think, maybe is cultural and control. And part of it is they can't just let it the dam break overnight. But it seems like they're heading the way, right way. And uh, there's 1.3 billion people that want to live better and they're willing to work hard. And so I think they'll come through. This is the part of the episode where we go freestyle in the few minutes we have left. Predictions, worries, life-affirming thoughts, Dalal Solomon? Life-affirming thoughts. Where's your mind right now? We're a couple weeks from inauguration. Um, the economy's humming. The United States very much came back from subprime. If you believe the numbers were near full employment, uh, the Fed is slowly ratcheting rates back up. What is chiefly on your radar? I mean, on our radar is, is primarily valuations. By all counts are relatively high. Um, debt and deficit is a big concern for us, I think. Although we would like to see interest rates rising, I, I think that's going to create some, some pressures, not just in the bond market, but in the stock market as well. Um, and I think the, uh, the, the wild card is we, we don't know what, um, what this next administration is really going to do. Jerry? I'm looking forward to uh, seeing if this is finally the unwinding of the massive excess control of the economy by the Fed. The zero interest rate policy over. How did this happen as soon as Trump gets elected? That baffles me a little bit. So I think that the, our country, the world in general, will be a better place if the markets are allowed to reach the levels that they will reach on their own. And so I think it's a good thing that our rates are higher because it probably means our markets are freer. Yes. Um, so I'm hoping to see more of a return to pre-08, as far as the markets in general go. Will I be using a BlackBerry Pearl again? I'm sorry? Black, you say BlackBerry? Uh, I don't know. I don't know anything about BlackBerry. I had a friend who had an Apple. She got rid of it, bought the BlackBerry, then got the Apple phone back a few weeks later. So. She might be in the audience. I don't know. This is a man who travels with a personal tech assistant. I love it. Like he gets, you know, if his, if his iPhone doesn't sync and the Apple TV isn't working, he's a thoroughly modeled Jerry Parker. Uh, finally, Mike Beal, predictions, concerns, life-affirming thoughts, close us out. I don't want to sound Pollyannish, but um, I think it's going to work out. You know, um, the American people, for instance, I mean, pretty darn resilient. Uh, we do a lot of stupid things. Uh, 
I think another Churchill quote, I think he used to say we would exhaust all options and in the end do the right thing. I think it, to be an, generally be an optimist is, is a good thing and I think it works more often than not and operate that way. I know 2008 and it was a very difficult period. Personally, I don't think we're gonna have another one of those for a long time. I think we're gonna have some scary things that will seem like that's gonna happen. The Trump change, you know, I, I didn't vote for Trump. I voted for the guy that thought Aleppo was dog food, you know. But, More confessions. But, that's right. but we, we, will, we will have communion after but, this. But, I, but I, I thought it was By dog. the time this show's over, I'll be a Catholic, yeah. though. I thought, I, thought he, I thought he was right. With the... Uh, you know, there's gonna, there, are, there is a path where some of the things, the more pro-business, more pro-capital markets that, that we're seeing, you know, being pursued, there are risks associated with it. I, but I think at the end, they're going to be good. Quick, who's winning the Super Bowl? The Dodgers. <laughs> uh, who's playing? I'm going to go, I'm going to say the Patriots. The Patriots, Jerry Parker. Thank you so much. Dalal Solomon, Jerry Parker, Mike Beal. For our inaugural, I hope, Money's on the RVA. We have many more in store, but only if you, if you don't seek out your refund from Brian Broadway. <laughs> Full disclosure, our studio engineer is John Valentine. Emily Shane is this evening's wonderful, incredibly patient producer. Audio gurus Andrew Craig and Iris Chan. Special thanks to VCU School of Business and President's Office, Performance Foods, Harris Williams, Zenith Bank, Meadows Urquhart, Steve and Kathy Markell, the charitable heart of Chris Sway. The Women's Investing Club of Richmond, who likes to squeeze my cheeks when I see them at the JCC. And last but not least, I would really, really, really love to thank Lee Gregory and Joe Sparata for taking the risk and pulling this off, this yummy meal. And the Hippodromes, Ron Stallings and Sarah Evans, you guys pull it off so well. You can find this great show on NPR One, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Acast, Prodigy, CompuServe, you name it. Full disclosure, we are growth at a reasonable price, cash flow negative and proud of it. Cash on the sidelines, this is where you want to park it. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.